0: Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, Follow me. The word of the Lord.
1: Well, just about uh, every preacher that I know has um, a recurring dream, and that is you walk into a sanctuary a service, and um, you are supposed to be preaching and you're not prepared. Um, This morning I got a call from Cam as he opened up the bulletin and said preaching this morning was Cam Brown, and he was not prepared, it was not a dream. So I said, Cam, I'll preach for you instead this morning. So this is the best I can do off the top of my head. No, actually, that was the second misprint in the bulletin. Cam was not supposed to be preaching this morning. He's relieved. But we are continuing in our uh, sermon series uh, in this season of Eastertide that we've entitled New Life, Post-Resurrection Conversations with Jesus. And the first week after Easter, we saw Jesus' encounter with Mary of Magdala, who uh, as John is creating the scene, he's wanting us to see new creation there at the resurrection. For Mary thinks that as she's talking with Jesus, she thinks it's the gardener. And it is the gardener of all the cosmos, making all things new in his resurrection. Two weeks ago, we saw Jesus interacting with a couple of individuals that were leaving Jerusalem on their way to Emmaus. And not, also not realizing they're talking with Jesus at the beginning. And in the end, after Jesus reveals who he is, by sharing a meal with them, we're told that their hearts burned within them. And they're like, how did we not see (laughs) this was Jesus? Because they had lost hope, and seeing their resurrected Lord renewed that hope. Last week, uh, Cam preached on Jesus' interaction with Thomas, the one disciple that wasn't present there in that room when Jesus first appeared to all of his disciples who were together. And Thomas himself said, unless I see, which was basically saying, I just want what you guys had, (laughs) unless I see and put my hands, I will not believe. And Jesus accommodates him, meets Thomas where he is. And here's the first recorded interaction in this passage between Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, and Peter. On Easter, if you'll recall, we we're reminded of a passage from the Apostle Peter's letter in which he argues that the historical event of the resurrection of Jesus Christ genuinely gives us a new and living hope. But that same Peter had to first experience a reconciliation and a restoration of sorts with the resurrected Jesus I would make the case before he was able to have the courage to write that. And this is the passage in which we see that restoration occur. So will you now, as we come to this text, will you pray with me just one more time and ask our living, resurrected Jesus to be present with us by his spirit. Jesus, we do come now, and we ask that you would meet with us however we have found ourselves coming into this place, whether full of great joy joy, whether full of sorrow, whether simply bored and indifferent to life right now, whether we come in full of belief, our faith is strong this morning, or whether we come in and, truth be told, we, we have a lot of doubts. Perhaps we're here this morning and we're simply trying to figure out if we can believe these things to be true. Jesus, however we find ourselves, meet us now. Show up now by your spirit as the living, resurrected Christ, the one who is the foundation of genuine and living hope. We pray these things for your sake. Amen. Let me ask you a question to start us off. When, What voice do you hear in your head? When you fail, when you blow it, when you let someone down, perhaps someone you really love or respect, or when you fall short of expectations on that team project at work, or when you find yourself lashing out with awful words at your children, at your parents at your spouse at your friend what voice do you hear when you fall and go back into that enslaving dehumanizing addiction when you do something that you think you were and it was incapable of you actually doing you're there again what voice rushes into your head in that moment and more specifically, what's the tone of that voice? Is it accusatory? Is it a voice of shame? Perhaps you're, here, you're someone here this morning who goes through life with a voice just outside of your head that follows you around everywhere and every second just waiting for you to blow it. You can feel it. Accusatory voice that is never silenced. And perhaps it has such a paralyzing grip on your heart and your soul. It keeps you in prison in a place of little to no joy because you're just afraid of messing up again. Maybe it's a father's voice. Maybe it's a mother's voice. Maybe it's a teacher's voice. A boss's voice. Maybe... It's even what you have groundlessly and baselessly imagined to be God's voice. And the unfortunate thing is it's just possible that you aren't even aware of how that living with that voice outside of your head spills out into your other relationships even now. When we meet Peter here, It is shortly after he has done the imaginable. Unimaginable, pardon me. (laughs) He has blown it, just like that. He has blown it. (laughs) Messed up. He's blown it about as significantly as anyone could possibly blow it. You see, two weeks prior to this passage... Jesus is having his final meal with his disciples, his closest friends, before he's about to be arrested and violently executed. It's an intimate and vulnerable atmosphere. And during that meal, Peter responds to Jesus' claim that ominous events await him by trying to muster up an appearance of courage. He asserts to Jesus' face and the presence of all the other disciples that he will follow Jesus anywhere, even to his own death, if that's what it takes. And then just hours later, after Jesus has been arrested and carried away while sitting around a charcoal fire, people seem to recognize Peter as one of Jesus' closest associates. And as soon as Peter begins to feel his security threatened, he gets nervous. (laughs) And he starts to fear that he might just be the next one arrested. And at that point, he ends up denying he even knows Jesus. By his third denial, Peter is cursing and swearing, I do not know that man. Peter's Bible, by the way, would not be rated PG for that among other passages. But Peter is cursing out of fear. He doesn't know Jesus, not just once, three times Peter blows it. Failure. Big time. And here we have at least the first recorded conversation between Jesus and Peter since that colossal failure. And I love the way that John starts the passage. Here's a community of friends who have just witnessed the torture and death of their rabbi and their teacher. And that has subsequently been followed up by a report from There are women friends who have said, we've seen the risen Jesus. (laughs) Jesus actually then appears to them, but not for an extended visit. It's only a momentary time. And so there must have been all sorts of questions, confusion, thoughts running through their head. And so they do what any of us would do in times that we don't feel like we have a full grasp on the situation. and We feel just a little bit discombobulated. We tend to simply do what is most familiar to us. And so Peter, the lifetime fisherman, says, I'm going fishing. (laughs) I'm going fishing. I don't know what else to do. I'm going fishing. (laughs) And the other disciples say, we'll go with you. And while they're fishing, they encounter Jesus. Now, Put yourself in Peter's shoes and imagine encountering Jesus face-to-face for the first time after you really blew it. What might you be expecting to come out of this conversation if you were in his shoes? What might you be expecting Jesus to say to you? John continues to set the scene perfectly for us. Because he tells us that Jesus is calling Peter back to a charcoal fire. Now, Scientists will tell us that our sense of smell is the strongest and quickest memory inducer. I'd kind of thought that learned that someplace and so I just did a little research so this is not me, just because that came out of my head this week as I was writing the sermon. This is notes that I took as I was Googling it. But this is what I found. When we see, hear, touch, and taste something, the sensory information first heads to the thalamus, okay, which acts as our brain's relay station. The thalamus then says that information to the relevant brain areas, including the hippocampus, which is responsible for memory, and the amygdala, which does the emotional processing. But scientists tell us with smells it's different. Sense smells actually bypass the thalamus. Bear with me with the biological. If I'm getting this wrong, I know we have scientists and, and doctors in the room. Just correct me. Actually, do it afterwards because it'll, it'll, <laughs> it'll. sense bypass the thalamus, go straight to the brain's small center known as the olfactory bulb and the olfactory bulb is directly, directly connected to the amygdala and the hippocampus, which explains, according to scientists, why the smell of something can so immediately trigger a detailed memory or even intense emotion. As soon as Peter smells the coals burning, I'm imagining his olfactory bulb must have been firing up an intense and poignant, humiliating memory In reaction. And once that memory of failure is fresh on Peter's mind, Jesus asks him, Peter, do you love me? And not just one time, but three times. Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? It can't be any clearer this is purposeful. (laughs) Three times Peter denies knowing, simply knowing, simply being associated with Jesus. And three times Jesus asks, do you love me? Now, was that really necessary jesus <laughs> it kind of feels as if you're rubbing it in just a bit in verse 17 peter certainly feels the weight of the moment because the apostle john writes peter was grieved because he said to him a third time do you love me so why 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 this approach, Jesus? Well, first of all, we can definitively say that Jesus is not doing this to shame Peter. Because if Jesus was trying to shame him, there are far better ways to do it. He could have said, Peter, how could you? You blew it. (laughs) You're such a liar and a coward. Or he could have been a little more subtle. What do you have to say for yourself? or perhaps even more passive-aggressively, Peter, I thought you were my friend. I can't believe that any of my disciples would do that. That's not what Jesus does. Jesus' approach here by asking Peter three times is all about securing Peter's full and whole restoration. His complete renewal. And Jesus knows that in order to experience the fullness of his gracious, healing, renewing forgiveness, Peter's failure must likewise be fully and completely exposed and engaged entirely. It's as if the wound has been superficially bandaged and covered up and had to be reopened. And properly addressed and medicated fully with the healing balm of Jesus' mercy and grace in order that it might properly and rightly heal. Jesus knew that Peter needed to stand fully and completely exposed in the entirety of his failure before his Savior in the presence of his Savior so that Peter would understand and grasp and appreciate the extent and sufficiency and entirety of the grace and forgiveness that Jesus was now offering him. Jesus knows that to the degree that you and I are in touch with our actual need for a Savior. We will love and cherish our Savior even more. And not just theoretically, knowing our need for a Savior, because after all, we are good, reformed people. We intellectually understand the doctrines of grace, but experientially, holy. As the one time slaveholder put it so well, John Newton. I am a great savior. Excuse me, I am a great sinner, but Jesus is a great savior. As many times as I bundle what I'm trying to say in this sermon, I can feel like a failure. I am a great sinner, but Jesus is a great savior. But Jesus does even more here that demonstrates the lengths that he will go to seek us out. And meet us where we are to draw him back to himself. Now, indulge me for a moment because this is not readily apparent in our English translations, but it is apparent in the original Greek. How about that? You get a biological and a Greek lesson in the same sermon. This is advanced homiletics today, folks. You may be already aware that there are multiple words used in the Greek language for love. We see two of them actually here in this conversation. Though, again, it's not apparent in our English translations. When Jesus first engages Peter, he asks him, Peter, do you agapeo me? Agape love is a committal type of love. It is a decision to love. It requires emotional and mental assent from the one doing the loving the fuel and the motivation for doing the loving comes from the subject actually doing loving. In other words, Jesus asks, Peter, do you commit to following me? Is that still your intention? To love me in that way? But Peter responds, yes, Jesus, not I agopeo you, but I phileo you. Not phile, I phileo you. Philos love is fondness or admiration. And the fuel and motivation for this type of loving is actually in the object receiving love. We might translate it, yes, Jesus, I consider you my friend. So Jesus asks a second time, no, 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 Peter, <laughs> do you agopeo me? Not phileo, do you agopeo me? A second time, Peter responds, yes, I phileo you. Of course I admire you. Of course I think of you as my friend. So the third time, Jesus actually changes his question. And the third time, Jesus says, okay, Peter, do you phileo me? It's almost as if Jesus is saying, okay, Peter, I get it. I get it. I know this is hard for you. You are hesitant and skittish to commit to me that type of love and commitment right now. I get it. And I mourn how sin disrupts our communion. So I will come to where you are, Peter. Peter, are you my friend? Jesus knows that when you and I blow it, too, we, too, are skittish about being overconfident about our love for Jesus and our commitment to follow him. And so being the great Savior that he is, he will come for us there to help us right there to again rebuild our faith. And my friends, at the end of the day, this is what the church is called to be and this is what Res Pres is called to be, a hospital and a place for Failures for those who don't have it all together and who meets failures and those who don't have it all together right where they are. ResPrez is called to be a place that Urban and University Madison knows that no matter who you are, what you've done, you are always welcome here. You're welcome in worship. You're welcome into our community groups, into our lives with the hope that you would find and experience the full healing and restoration of a great Savior. And not only after you fully are on board and get it like we do. <laughs> Look, Peter doesn't fully get it at this point either. We'll read in Acts that Paul has to get in his face <laughs> and tell him he's way off about what he's how he's living out the gospel. Peter doesn't fully get it even yet. But we are called to be a community of people who, as we are experiencing the redeeming, restoring kindness of Jesus, we are doing so and then returning and reciprocating that redeeming, restoring kindness of Jesus to others. (laughs) And when we get this, when we believe this, that Jesus truly intends to fully save, to fully redeem, to fully restore, not just theoretically, but experientially. And he does so by starting exactly where we are and building from there. You and I will more and more realize that the truest thing about us are not those accusatory voices in our head, but rather what Jesus says about us, about you, because of what he has done for you. And one way that that becomes apparent, that you are hearing more and more of Jesus' voice of embrace, and that you are living less and less out of a fear of what the accusing voices in your life might say, is that people find you to be someone that they can be completely honest with, and let down their guard with, in the presence of. When people fail around you, you don't hold it against them. You long to see them fully Restored, And even in your redemptive and even corrective pursuit at times of them, the tone that they will hear will be compassion and mercy and not accusation. And after all, this is exactly what Jesus calls Peter to in the midst of this restoration. Because three times as Peter affirms his love for Jesus in the way that he does, each time Jesus calls him, to shepherd and to pastor and to care for and to love his people. Peter, do you love me? Yes, feed my lambs. Peter, do you love me? Yes, tend my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Yes, feed my sheep. Three times Jesus is saying, Peter, I want you to care for the very people that I have rescued by shedding my blood for. You see, Jesus is not interested in merely saving you and me from our own personal existential moment at that time, he longs for us to then become conduits of that mercy and that compassion, that grace to others around us who just are as just desperate to know that they can fully be embraced and accepted. Res prez, God willing, will be more and more that safe place and sanctuary for those that don't have it all together. Because as he restores Peter and then commissions him into mission, if you are here this morning and you have found that here at Resprez that sanctuary, you are commissioned as well. Because after all, who does Jesus call into his ministry (laughs) to love others, to care for his sheep? He calls failures. (laughs) He calls failures like Moses, a murderer. Like David, an adulterer. Like Peter, a betrayer. Like you, like me. And far from disqualifying us from ministry, our failures, when they are humbly acknowledged and renewed by the blood of Jesus, become an aroma of hope to everyone around us. Now, that doesn't mean, as a side note... (laughs) That when trust is broken, that one's immediately replaced to that level of authority or influence. That's another sermon for another day. The restoration that we're talking about is our communion with Jesus himself. Not necessarily our political or authoritative stature. And in fact, often restoration of one's communion with Jesus will necessarily mean an extended season out of a place of influence. But the truth is, Jesus doesn't call anybody but failures into his mission to love and care for others. Jesus is basically saying to Peter, to us, as a failure who has now experienced my restorative mercy, you are now ready to be a refuge for other failures. And not only is that encouraging but it's also challenging because you notice how Jesus finishes this conversation with Peter <laughs> he gives him a heads up before he gave him a heads up that he was going to betray him now is giving a heads up about where Peter is heading in the long run <laughs> you see anytime Jesus calls somebody into mission into his ministry to love and care for his sheep it will be messy it will be complex He will bid us out of our comfort zone. It will often often entail loving on people who would not be those that we would ordinarily choose to even be around. It will be a sacrifice of our time and resources. But as Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, wrote one, that when Jesus calls someone, he bids them to come and die. But. We are following someone, we are following a savior who would never bid us to go someplace that he has not yet gone before. And the truth is, the motivation, the fuel for that will come because you will know (laughs) that whatever the accusing voice is in your head, you will be reminded that the voice of the only one whose opinion ultimately matters speaks gentleness and grace to you. And his corrective restoration is always from a posture of compassion and love. That's the voice that ought to speak loudest in our minds and hearts. Last week, I I shared a little bit about a, a, a very difficult time early in the marriage, a very difficult situation with a job. I talked about how I actually called the wrong person and went off for about 10 minutes thinking I was talking to the another person (laughs) that story continues there's another conversation that happened just a few days later I end up losing that job and actually not just a few days a couple weeks later I had another interview set up I thought I knocked the interview out of the park even as even if still conflicted and having a hard time with how things were going I thought I did a great job on the interview only to find out, yep, no, we're passing on you, John. We're going to go in a different direction. After losing my job, failing at that interview, thinking I did really well, (laughs) I called my dad. And I am in, like, Jen's nowhere near this conversation. I'm with just me and my dad on the phone. And I don't know if I've ever had this conversation with this type of vulnerable conversation with my dad, but I am weeping on the phone with my dad. I'm like, dad, I've blown it. <laughs> and I'm feeling so lost. I don't, I, I, I don't know, I thought I did a great job in the interview. I honestly don't think I should have been fired. And I, and I remember in the midst of my tears, I said, dad, are you even proud of me? <laughs> Without hesitation on the other end of the phone, John, <laughs> I am so proud of you. <laughs> I don't care what these, your former boss or the potential new boss has said about you. I, I am proud of you and I love you. You are my son and that will never change. Friends, no matter what we have done, no matter how much of a failure we may often feel, we have a heavenly father who is genuinely proud of his children. And he knows everything about us, not just the professional failures, (laughs) but the moral failures, the sinful failures. And if you were in Jesus Christ this morning, you have a heavenly father that looks at you right now and says, I am proud of you. And I love you because you are my daughter. You are my son. And nothing that any other accusatory voice would ever say can ever change that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we admit that it it is a difficult thing to face our own failures, our own weaknesses, especially when those are exposed, whether they be professionally, morally, sinfully. Jesus, would you remind us, help us to believe again that because of your covenant love towards us, because of your death and resurrection, your heavenly Father now And you, with your heavenly Father, look at us as your children, as your daughters, as your sons. And you love us. And you are proud of us. That is genuinely your posture towards us. In those moments when the accusing voices come, may your voice, your true voice and word to us ring even louder. I pray this for Christ's sake, amen.